Amazon spending about $4 to get a package to the customer. And these people in general, the market is spending 10. That's what you need to solve. You can't be spending two and a half times what other people are spending. Welcome to the Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate investment broker or anyone out there with an off-market Class B industrial deal between $15 and $100 million? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partner trips for those that close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. This is the final recording of the year. We're recording this on the 22nd and we're heading into the holidays. Aaron, welcome uh, to the Fort Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Why don't we uh, just get started with kind of how you got started uh, with Ship Hero and and came up with this idea uh, that you've been working on now for almost 10 years? Yeah, sure. So it's my second business, my first business. I started in college just accidentally, sort of. And uh, it was an e-commerce business. So there was a bunch of things I was frustrated about running that business. I was like, hey, I can do this better. And I was a programmer. So programming since I was a little kid. So I was like, I'm just going to start on this. You know, Nights and weekends, hacked something together, got our first customer after about a year. And it just kept running with it until this became my full-time business. And in your notes, uh, before we jump into that, I have to to ask, you put, we ask everybody always three facts. And your second fact was, uh, I nearly went bankrupt in 2008. Can you expand on that? If I have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, all, all the shit that can go wrong went wrong. So, so I started the business with a family friend in in college. Uh, I was in college. I was 10 years older. And it was just... I don't beat all my money like just hustling online uh, since I was a kid. So I thought it's just a way to make a couple extra bucks. Um, it took off. I never had access to the financials. I never had access to the books. I just sort of like... He, like I was the tech and marketing and he was like the business side, whatever that meant. right? I was a programmer. Like I never got into that. And we went from you know thinking we had a pretty good profitable business to like I just like one of the worst days of my life was my mom you know she, she died of cancer about um 14 15 years ago at this point so she was in the hospital like right at like a couple of weeks left at that point and um my whole family like me my brother and my dad were like rotating so we were there 24 hours a day so we'd like work and then be there overnight and like whatever it was it was obviously you know it's difficult it's all kind of a blur and um my business partner is like there's some issues could you meet at our accountant's office i never met our accountant our accountant was my business partner's friend he's like can we meet at his office in the city i'm like all right i'm gonna go my mom was in the hospital in new york city i lived in the suburbs so i'm like all right i'll just go to there to this meeting and then I'll go to the hospital because I was supposed to be in the hospital that night. So I go there and like, all I remember is them basically saying like, Hey, this is what we thought the business did. Like we thought we had this much cash and we made this much profit last year. But in reality, like we lost money and like, we actually don't have cash. We owe all this money. And like, Oh my God, we're going to go bankrupt. Um, <laughs> I, I literally don't remember anything from that. Till like the next morning, like leaving the hospital, like that whole, like, I don't know, 12 hours, whatever. It's just a blur. I just don't even remember. I don't remember leaving. I don't remember the rest of the meeting. I don't remember anything. So uh, basically never figured out quite what happened, but like the accounting was wrong. <laughs> so um, uh, later that year, and that was like the reason why I can't, you know, like that saying, like, hey, you, you, you see, you got the Buffett saying, but like, sort of you see who's naked when the tide goes out or whatever, right? So it was in 08 when the financial crisis hit because we were selling apparel for martial arts, which is like for kids taking karate basically at the time. And um, that market just died because 
that's the first thing you cut, right? You cut your kids' karate lessons, like it's not a necessity. So our revenue went down. And that's when it sort of revealed that, hey, all these numbers were sort of fake. So anyways, I ended up buying them out because my dad, my dad, who's a college professor, didn't have a lot of money, but his house was paid for. So he mortgaged his house. Uh, I took that money, paid off the debts that we had as much as we can, ended up paying everyone in full, uh, didn't default on any loans, but you know, just barely eked it out for a few years and eventually turned it around. Got the business back to the point where it was really making you know, north of a million a year. But, um, but when I say we were close to bankruptcy, I would wake up every morning like full of anxiety and just check the bank account to be like, did we bounce anything? Like we were so close to like we were so close to zero every day. Like we were like bouncing off that zero until we, you know, eventually rebuilt it. But uh, that is a sickening just waking up every day. It's like you have five seconds of not thinking about it. And then all of a sudden the thought hits you. You're like, damn it. Here we go. I just could be on my computer like before I did anything like I'd get up and just check the bank balance and like is a negative. So the lessons learned are obviously better accounting or more oversight of accounting. Is that fair? Or like, was there anything that you kind of said, like we could have done this better and it wouldn't have been such a surprise or? Well, I just trusted someone entirely with the accounting and we're like, oh, he's got it. Right. And I didn't even touch, stick my nose in it. And, you know, obviously in hindsight, like you gotta, you gotta know what's going on with the numbers. Like you just can't just trust someone. Was there anything you did differently that you weren't doing before to turn around the business? Like, was there a new skill that you that you learned through all that is why you're able to turn it back to a million bucks a year? So we we basically reinvented the whole business. We switched from selling karate equipment to selling equipment for a martial art called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that was just taken off at the time. Um, it was really out of necessity because we had no money for inventory. So we switched to like a deal a day model. Because uh, I couldn't afford to stock a thousand SKUs, so I was like, "I'm going to stock seven and sell one item a day," uh, which worked really well, and is still the primary business model of that business today. You know, 14 years later, but it was really like just a desperation hail mary because we couldn't, we just didn't have the money to buy inventory. Yep. So, was this the impetus for the idea to start Ship Hero? And can you explain a little bit about what Ship Hero is, maybe when you started and what it is today? Yeah, no. So by the time I started Ship Hero, that company was, you know, well back on its feet, making good money, um, and it was sort of just a traditional e-commerce business at that point. So uh, Ship Hero, we started as warehouse management software. Um, so basically, whether you're a brand that ships your own product or you're a third-party logistics company shipping for other people, you need technology to to run the warehouse, generate the labels, all that stuff. So. We still do that today. We serve about eight billion a year of uh, orders. Eight billion dollars a year worth of orders are shipped through our system. More than one out of every two hundred packages in the U.S., including Amazon, in that two, in that that pool of packages, ships using our software. Um, so we built it. We got some customers shipping, you know, as much as you know, a quarter of a million packages a week. We've got some pretty good scale customers, and and we're just the software running in those those buildings. Um, that's how we started. Uh, about three years ago, we also started opening our own facility. So we've got nine facilities uh, across the US and Canada where we just ship for people who want to outsource to us. Um, it's a smaller business. It's uh, about $800 million a year of GMV. Um, we're serving about $800 million of, of customer orders a year. So about 10% of the size of our software business. Is there a size... Uh... Where you're too... Like you shouldn't actually be shipping your own product even though they probably are like, is there a size where you're too small or like, what is the size that you should start bringing shipping in house and not using your facility? I don't know if I'm asking that the right way. Well, you see, usually it just pays to start shipping your own when you're really small. And then when you get to you know a million or so a year in revenue, it pays to start to outsource it because you can't ship it yourself. You got to start getting a warehouse and hiring a team. And it's just not worth it. You'll end up spending more money. Unless you have some sort of customized product, but you know everyone thinks they do. Most people's products are pretty generic. At the end of the day, it goes in a box and gets shipped. Um, and then it doesn't become worth bringing it back in house until you're pretty decent scale. So, like uh, Solo Brands, one of our customers, they're a small public company. 
I think they have like a million square feet across a bunch of different facilities. Like at that scale, it starts to, the economics of bringing it back in-house can make sense if you're, if you want to run it. But in between that, you know, one and a couple hundred million dollars in annual revenue, outsourcing it while far from perfect is way better than running it in-house. And I've, I've done both. And you said that you guys ship for Amazon. Did I hear that no, right? No, no, no. What I'm saying is when you look at all the packages shipped in the US, we have more than one out of every 200. So basically, like Amazon has 100 out of the 200. And in that remaining 100, we get like one of them. So no, we don't ship for Amazon. I had this very generic question that you can take a lot of ways. And it said, when I say Amazon, what does that make you think about from your view of the world? Are they a big competitor of yours? Are they, do you not think about them? Are they, like, how, how do you think about them in relation to what you do every day? They're certainly a competitor, but you know, there's so, so much bigger to, we don't think of them sort of that way. I think actually the most surprising thing about Amazon is I saw, I'll pull this to Twitter for a second. A couple of people posted today complaining at today's uh, December 22nd complaining that um, their listings on Amazon are showing delivery after Christmas. And they were like <laughs> ragging on Amazon. And I'm like, do you know how hard it is to get something <laughs> delivered when you order today before Christmas and there's storms coming across the United States? And like, it's just funny how they're so good at what they do, yet it's never enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? So just a little. But Amazon's the best in the world at what they do. A lot of what we do is is honestly just following them. Like we, they've they've trailblazed. Um, they're way ahead of everyone else. I think people follow them in the wrong way. So like, oh, we also have to deliver in two days or one day. I'm like, no, it's actually not the reality. But what they do is they deliver for cheaper than anyone else in the world. And that's a good goal. So if it takes three days instead of two, that's fine. But if you're spending, let's put it this way, Amazon's spending about four dollars to to get a package to the customer, and these people, in general, the market is spending ten. That's what you need to solve. You can't be spending two and a half times what other people are spending. So we try to close that gap, and um, you know, fortunately, we can copy what they do. And yeah, it's a lot of what we do, frankly. Have they just made it harder for small businesses and folks that can't get that cost? Like, or have you found that customers don't really care if it arrives next day or even two days? Like, they're cool with the three or four day delivery, or have they kind of reset everybody's expectations? I mean, you just mentioned the Christmas thing. The two day thing has as much fooled people as as actually impacted thing. I think it's caused a lot of big companies to chase two day when they shouldn't be. But um there's a reason why they're almost 50% of the market for e-commerce, right? Like people like the convenience and they like the fast free shipping. Like they're Amazon's not stupid, right? They might not make a lot of money on that business, but they've sure made sure no one else does either. When you say you copy them, like how do you copy them? I, I'm assuming you just obviously are watching what they're doing, but as far as the little nuts and bolts that nobody actually sees, like how do you get a good view into what you need to be doing based on what they're doing? Are there things that are obvious, like hiding in plain sight that you watch for? Is it certain data? Like, how do you copy them? Uh, so I would copy them in a couple of very, very specific ways. And I think people, again, are for the most part copying the wrong thing. So people think, hey, Amazon's got all these robots. I got to have all these robots. And we have some robots in our, in our warehouses. Amazon doesn't actually use robots for many of their buildings. That's not what you should be copying. The main advantage that... So the way that our business works, the way being a 3PL works is 70% of the cost happens outside of your building. It goes to UPS or FedEx. That's 70%. So if you're spending all your time worrying about what happens inside the building, the maximum you can reduce it is like 29%, right? If you took all your costs and reduced it by 99%, you're actually only reducing 29% of the total cost, right? You need to reduce that 70%. And how do you not pay UPS and FedEx so much money? The model of what we do in our buildings, and it's, it's fairly obvious once you, um, once you see it, is we tell our customers, ship all your products to one warehouse, let's say our warehouse in Las Vegas. And we take that product, we put it on trucks, we ship it to a bunch of other warehouses. When someone orders in Dallas or Fort Worth, we ship it via local carrier, because we have the product sitting in Fort Worth, we ship it via a local carrier who delivers it the next day. 
exactly what Amazon did, right? It's a very simple model. It's very hard to execute, but conceptually fairly simple. And the cost savings there dwarf the entire amount spent in the warehouse. So you can save more by just shipping it via local carrier in Fort Worth than the entire cost of picking a packing and order in your warehouse. You just got to make sure you have the product in the right place at the right time. Again, easier said than done, but like that is the answer. There is no like, oh, I'm going to make my warehouse perfectly efficient. It doesn't matter. I'm still, I still win on price because I'm not paying UPS $7 to deliver. I have a local carrier who's delivering it for four. So you, you can't cover that $3. There's no way to make up that $3 in the warehouse because the entire warehouse bill is two. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Is there like a, uh, like a, the best product you could ever ship that's like the right size, right weight, like, or there's products that are just terrible to ship for the customer? Like, is there a perfect product out there or it just varies and depends how much you charge? It varies based on the type of customer. So for me, I need to be able to get the product close to the end customer, which means an apparel customer that has you know, are the average orders like four different shirts and they've got like every color and every size and everything like that, they're not going to give me enough stock to be able to distribute that across five warehouses. Like they're only going to send me like eight extra large green, right? So how am I going to split that between all the warehouses? Like it just doesn't work well for me. So for me, better is a customer that has a relatively small number of SKUs um, so that I could get it in all my buildings. Um, Now for other people, they would prefer the different profile, like apparel, for us, it's not great. So like one of our biggest customers is a, a brand called Momofuku, which is a, a restaurant, uh, but they also sell uh, food online. And they only like just sell tons of them. And uh, but there's only like 35 different SKUs, right? There's like this type of spicy noodles or that, that. There's only a limited number and they're big and heavy, which is also good because UPS charges a ton to ship big and heavy stuff. My local carriers like doesn't cost me that much more heavy versus light, uh, so that's a good profile for me. But different different three PLs like different things. Okay, so if I order like a T shirt that's made in L A. and you are the you are working with that apparel company, and I'm in Fort Worth, Texas, how does that product get to me? So the old model would be they would have a warehouse right next to their factory. And whether you were in New York or Fort Worth or Miami, it would ship from that warehouse near that factory. And if they wanted to get it to you quick, they'd put it on a plane. It would go UPS second the air. And if they didn't care, and it'll get there in two days, but it would cost them like $18. And if they didn't care about the speed, they'd give it to like DHL e-commerce. It would cost them you know, 6 bucks, but it would take 5 days or more. Those are the two options. So what we do is we take it, we move it, and it would probably be sitting in the warehouse in Fort Worth and you would get it the next day. If you're San Antonio, we can get it the next day. Houston, we can get it the next day. If you're further out and you're not in a major metro, it'll probably take two days. Um, and it'll cost me less than five bucks to get it. Is there like a common mistake that maybe you know startup e-commerce or first-time e-commerce companies or just in general, make when they're thinking about how they ship product and warehouse product? Like, is there, a, is there something that is like an easy fastball for if somebody's listening to this that they could better their business if they stopped doing this and did this instead? Yeah, the most common mistake is someone says, my product comes in to the port of LA. I don't want to pay to ship it into Kansas City or somewhere, right? So I'm just going to stock it the closest to the port I can because that saves me my inbound freight. What they don't realize is they're spending eight times as much on the outbound freight as they are on the inbound freight. But it's harder to see, right? Because it's a million little transactions versus inbounds one big transaction. So people say, I, it's called drayage, that, inb- that freight from the port to the warehouse. And they're like, man, the drayage is an extra $3,000. So I ship it all the way to Kansas City. Like I can't do that. But they don't realize they're paying an extra $2 on every shipment going out UPS. And in fact, they're spending an extra $23,000 shipping it there. And like, I mean, I've I've had this conversation directly with people and they still don't get it. So people won't believe me because people see the big number and the the small number on every bill is harder to notice. But that's the reality. You want to be close to the end customer, not the port. 
you want to be closer to the end customer, not the port. And and the their logic and thinking is if they're closer to the, remind me again, why does it seem obvious that you want to be closer to the port? So the way you pay for inbound is you pay for the cost of the container moving from China to LA, right? Which nowadays it's not that expensive. It's let's say three grand, right? Then you pay the in, in uh, inland freight or the drayage, which is the cost of moving that container from the port to the warehouse. So if that if that warehouse is in you know the inland empire, it'd be less than five hundred bucks. If that warehouse is somewhere in the middle of the country, it will be a few thousand dollars, right? So it looks like it's more expensive to move. It is more expensive to move it there, but then when you're shipping to New York, you're spending half as much because it's already halfway there, right? It's always cheaper to move something in bulk than individual units, but people don't see it because no one wants to read their UPS bill because it's a million pages long and they fall asleep, you know. But is it cheaper to ship something to a big city with a lot of infrastructure as opposed to like a rural city in like the middle of nowhere, Montana? Uh, so like everything in logistics, it depends. So you got to be smart with your carrier mix. So there's UPS and FedEx will charge you an additional $13 to get to that little town in Montana per package. So if the list rate to ship it is $8, they'll charge you a residential surcharge, a super residential surcharge, and then a remote area surcharge. So the remote area surcharge is $13 and those other surcharges are like two and three or something like that. Like you end up paying way more than you would think to get it out there. But if you ship that same package USPS, while the base rate might be higher, there are zero surcharges. So you need to like look at every package in real time and make a different decision. So like there's no one in the world who could ever figure it out because there's all these zip codes and and it's just different carriers treat them differently. So if you're not being smart and saying, well, this package, UPS gonna charge me extra, I'll go USPS. And this package, you know, UPS is is cheaper or faster. Like you have to analyze each one. And our WMS does that. Like it's just built in. So it just automatically does it. It automatically picks the right carrier. Yeah, you just say like I want it. You just if you use our software, you just say I want this package to get there the cheapest way possible that gets you an X amount of days, and then we um, we in advance look up based on what we think the weight is going to be, all the uh, all the options, and we make a decision as to which uh, which method to use. If you're a apparel company. Are you just kind of hoping that most of your orders obviously are going to big cities? Like you're just hoping that you're not getting a onesie here in like the middle of nowhere, Iowa, then one to Montana. Like is your model assuming that 90% of product is going to a major hub that's easier to get to? Or do you really care one way or the other? I think most brands are not nearly sophisticated enough to know. And frankly, everyone hates logistics and they don't want to spend any time thinking about it. So they just pray. <laughs> just like cover their eyes. Uh, half the people who have like these mid-sized e-commerce brands, if you ask them two simple questions, how much does it cost you on average per package? And how long does it take to get there on average? They cannot answer. What they'll say is, oh, DHL charges me six bucks. And you say, but like if you shipped a thousand packages last week, was your bill $6,000? And They'll have no idea. And then they'll look at it and they'll be like, oh, actually, it's 8000 if you can convince them to look. Because they don't understand what their bills are because they're assuming that every package is going from LA to San Francisco. Like, oh, that's only 6 bucks. Not realizing that, well, if it's going from LA to yeah, rural Montana, that's actually like $18 and they didn't factor that in, right? So yeah, no one knows because no one spends the, the time to look. I was looking at the ways that you guys uh, make things cheaper for your customers. And one of the things it said, um, y'all do three times picking efficiency. Did I say that right? Yeah. On our, our software is really good at um, what does that mean? People. So we have like a bunch of videos. If you go on YouTube, you can see how we pick and pack orders, but we're pretty good at um, getting orders picked and packed well. So we tell people they should be spending less than $1.50 all in on labor to ship an average order, uh, which is significantly less than what you would get on a sort of older school system. So we do that. We have like mobile uh, apps. You scan items. 
they batch them, they group them intelligently, so you reduce your walk. And we have a bunch of other tools to make the picking and packing process quicker. And then we also have a ton of videos because we do run our own buildings that are really uh, pretty big scale buildings. And we, we do a lot of videos for just process improvement. Like, here's the ideal flow. Actually, I'm going to do a bunch of new ones in January because we came up with a couple of uh, tweaks to our systems. But um, yeah, we give people both the, to- the software and the flows to use in their own warehouse. And you can use the flows in other software as well, obviously. You can still watch the videos and learn from them. But we try to help people drive that cost down. Uh, and we think we're pretty good at that. Drones. Delivering packages by drone. Yeah, it's not here yet. It's not here yet. Every time I see it like an infomercial, I just imagine either like BB guns coming out and you're popping drones out of the sky or I just I see it as like a huge mess. Am I missing anything? Like, is this really going to happen where we've got drones delivering packages? You look up in the sky and there's just Amazon boxes and ship hero boxes everywhere. Like, how does this play out? I hope so. I don't, I mean, it's not going to happen this <laughs> decade. Like, no, it, it, there's, there's a bunch of intermediate ways to make it happen that I think are actually really helpful depending on the environment. So, you know, in big cities, it's not necessary. It's not even possible, right? But um, sort of rural communities, you can you think of the idea of a truck showing up to a neighborhood and then like a bunch of drones dispatching and just instead of going to everyone's door, it just flies it there, right? Um, it does, you know, eight at a time or something. Like, it's not so far. Um, you can keep even line of sight, probably. So, I, I think there will be... Drones will be part of a future in 10 years from now. It's just, we're very far. The tech, like, keeps failing. And it's just, it's a hard problem to solve. And very dangerous when it fails. Or the little robots that are just going down the sidewalk, like little... Yeah. Uh, they have those little ET. Those, yeah, those are live um, in some cities, and they're doing some, but these are very marginal, like very small percentage. And you got to go down and meet them. You know, it's like, do you really want to go out and meet your delivery drone? No, you just want UPS to leave it on your front porch, and you'll get it later, right? Like, so. Yeah, I feel like some of it's unnecessary. I mean, I feel like this is going to be the next Lime scooters or Bird scooters, whatever. They just end up you know, in uh, over a bridge in the water eventually. Um, but we'll see. I, I don't think so because the ROI is pretty easy to tell, right? Do you, like, I don't feel like business to business things don't happen like that because you just pilot it, right? Like UPS pilots it and they just spend like a couple of million bucks to try it. And if it doesn't work, they don't scale it out to a billion dollars like Limewood, right? They're just smarter about it. So it's going to take forever. Like, again, I, I think we're <laughs> uh, 10 years away. Um, <laughs> But it'll happen. And if it doesn't happen in the US because of regulations, it'll happen in other countries because someone will like that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit just about like the current market. Like you are on the front lines of seeing how the American consumer is behaving. And we're heading into Christmas in three days. Like what are you seeing right now uh, as it relates maybe to where we were a year ago or just in general, like any high level thoughts? Yeah, but spending's. Up spending this year was earlier, so I think that also threw people off. So uh, November was way better than people thought. Um, December's moderated a bit, uh, so I think that's just consumers just maybe learning to buy earlier or people running sales earlier. I don't know. So I think there was somewhat of just a pull forward in demand, uh, but we're not falling off a cliff. I think you know we've seen. You know, again, let's go back to Amazon as an example. They really locked down a lot of capacity. They shut people off from being able to send in product in Q4 because more product hit their docks than they expected. They had announced that they were subleasing space and firing people in Q3. And then in Q4, they said, we don't have enough space. We're not allowing you to send stuff in, right? How's that possible? Is that we Q3 looked bad. Like Q3 was heading south. Everyone started to cut. Uh, everyone was focused on how do we deal with the down year. Q4 turned out to be an up year. It's not a up 25% year. It's not like some gangbusters year. But if we're up, I don't know, whatever, we'll end up 8-10%. Even if it's a little lower than that, it was 6 or 8%. That's still a pretty good year considering like what the Fed's been doing. And just sort of like, it, it looked like it was going to be way worse. So it's going to be an okay, it's, it's an okay season. It's an up season. 
I, I'm optimistic. I always feel like it's really hard to crush the U.S. consumer. Like we keep buying stuff. Like you know, maybe we're not going to keep growing as fast, but like the idea of like, hey, the U.S. consumer is going to slow down and spend less. Um, I don't. Know, it just doesn't seem there. It seems like if it's a recession, it's a really, really you know mild, mild uh, consumer recession. Maybe more of a business recession, but consumers they're still they're still buying. Is there any cracks in e-commerce in general? Like for a lot of companies, you know, there's been talk maybe that the cost to acquire customers too high, like they're not actually as profitable as they thought they were and that brick and mortar actually serves a much bigger need in society. Like when you kind of hear those kind of, you know, key statements made, like how do you think about that? I mean, cost per acquisition did just go up like apple did change the rules like there's a reason like meta stock dropped and like they just made it harder to target customers so that did destroy a lot or it took a lot of marginal businesses and and made them unprofitable and it took a lot of decent businesses and made them more marginal like it did just whack the, the industry um the a couple other things is hey there was a lot of free money floating around so Consumers buy now, pay later. I think that's the biggest risk. Um, that's the one thing I'm worried about. I'm pretty optimistic overall, but I'm a little worried about post Christmas if people are going to have no money because they've tapped out their credit cards and all their buy now, pay later's are due, and they just there's no more no more debt, right? Like when the debt stops, like if they were living off debt, then then they got to stop spending entirely, right? Not only do they not have the debt, they don't have the money because they're paying the debt, right? Like they're not paying the debt. So I think there's some of that is affecting e-commerce, right? Consumers a little tighter on money, so a little harder to get that dollar from them. But also, the e-commerce businesses were taking these loans from you know four different places, right? There's a lot of companies providing debt to e-commerce businesses, and they've been pulling back, so they're not providing that much debt, right? So even good businesses, right? That's just the way it works when lenders pull back. Um, they basically pull back broadly because they can't really evaluate all these small small borrowers, right? So they just pull back entirely. So there's a little bit less debt. So there was some companies that you know were growing, but were never really profitable. But mm. you know, if you're growing and you could get debt, you know that trap, right? You're growing and you get debt. You grow, you get debt, and then one day there's no more debt, and you're like, oh shit, I don't actually have a business here, right? I was just, <laughs> I was just 100 leveraged. So um, some of that, some people get squeezed there. But I think overall. Like the the good businesses will be fine, and um, and you also have like the Pelotons of the world and some other people that just had these like crazy valuations based on COVID spending that were just never realistic, and they just you know crashed back or Carvana or whatever they're just crashing back to earth. But um, they probably should never have you know had the valuations they had. Yeah. If you're like me, you like to wake up and get your daily dose of reading. For me, a lot of that has to do with commercial real estate because of the industry that we're in at Fort Capital. And the news is important. But if you're a busy real estate professional like me, you don't have time to skim through the dozens of dry and ad-filled media outlets each day. That's why I read CRE Daily, a free email newsletter that cuts through the clutter and delivers concise, witty commentary on the latest trends and transactions in commercial real estate. I discovered CRE Daily a few months ago, and it's an email I actually look forward to getting each morning. If you're a real estate professional, you owe it to yourself to try it out and stay on top of what's happening in the industry in only five minutes. To give their free daily newsletter a try, visit CREDaily.com. That's CREDaily.com. Uh, I was at a YPO, uh, like the global real estate conference recently, and a, and a panelist said something that I've kind of heard in different ways. And they were talking about Amazon and all the innovation going on inside the warehouse. And, you know, one thing that I like about the industrial space is there's so much investment going into how do you get more product through the the warehouse. And they just made a case. Now, we'll see or not, but they just said 10 years from now, you could see some industrial rents as high as $50 a foot because the throughput through these buildings is just going to get so uh, great that the margins that they're able to achieve out of each building are, are huge and $50 a foot isn't going to, um, you know, phase them. Now, whether that happens or not, you know, we're, let's just say in most markets, you're at an average of like eight to 12 bucks. I mean, that's a big statement to say there's 50. So I guess my question would be, if as you think about like 
what are the leading things that could make a warehouse that much more efficient? Is it all robotics? Like, how could you possibly get there? Is it mezzanine levels within a warehouse? Like, if I was to say, you know, I want to charge $50 a foot and in 10 years, I need a tenant that could pay that. How are they going to get there? Yeah, I mean, part of it is going to have to be regulation, not allowing people to build more. Like, in it's Canadian dollars, but in Vancouver, it's over 25 bucks at this point because you just, you can't build. So, um, so it's, that would have to be part of it, right? Because if you could keep building, people still throw up buildings and drive that price down. Um, you know, there's some places of the warehouse that have been getting way more efficient, um, but other square footage where you really can. So the way basically most warehouses look is half the building is very not very narrow aisle pallet racking um, up to the ceiling. And it's hard to imagine getting more dense than that. So you have an aisle. The aisle has a wire guide on it. You have a turret truck that drives between it. There's only about you know four or five inches of clearance on either side of that. And then you have pallet racks all the way up to the ceiling. So I don't know how you get more dense in that sort of overstock area. In the pickable areas where you... And that's where you keep your overstock, right? So you get in 10,000 units, 9,000 go there, 1,000 go in the pickable areas. The pickable areas um, have been getting more dense and, and will continue to get more dense due to robotics. But that's only about half the building or a little bit less than half the building that's that. So I just I don't see how you can squeeze any more uh, density out of the uh, overstock areas because those very narrow aisle pallet racks are I mean they're full of stock like I'm not really sure how you would get that any any higher um, yeah throughput's going up but the actual square f- through throughput's going up but the storage um, is hard to make denser. Yep. Okay. Some might say that globalization is, I don't know if the word's over, but it's, it's, uh, it's on its way back to not being a globalized world. That has, I mean, if the average American didn't know what a supply chain was three years ago, I think every American has heard the word supply chain over and over and over. Again, you've been at the center of it. Like, let's talk about onshoring. Let's just talk about a little bit about what you're seeing. Like, how is the world reorienting itself? And from your view of the world, like, what are you expecting to see? The good, the bad, the ugly? Yeah, we discussed this a little bit. It's it's hard to move supply chains. People, if you want to track how many people say they're going to move their supply chains, it's a lot. If you want to track how many people are actually moving their supply chains, it's pretty low. Um, the... I forget the exact numbers. I looked it up the other day. Um, but over the last few years, since the Trump tariffs, which we thought were going to uh, decimate imports from China, the growth in imports from China have exceeded. And I, again, I, I got to look up these numbers. Got to be slightly off, but have exceeded all our imports from Mexico. They've grown more than the entire. Uh, imports from Mexico and the, and the imports from Mexico have barely grown. Um, you know, you're talking, you know, 10% a year sort of growth, like super slow compared to the narrative of like, oh my God, we're onshoring, we're moving, or we're near shore and move everything close. Um, it's just not happening. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to speak to Noel Rubini, the other, not the other day, it was a few months ago at this point about this. And he was saying, hey, it's going to be not near shoring, but it's going to be friend shoring. Where what the government's going to do is uh, say or exert pressure to make it such that maybe it's not Mexico, but it's also not China because we don't like China. So we're going to be importing more from India or from other places that are are uh, more aligned with with the U.S. So that was his idea, but to do that requires a pretty heavy-handed. Uh, government influence, right? Um, I mean, 25% tariff wasn't enough. So how much pressure are they going to exert? They could do it, right? They can make it so that imported from China is so unpleasant that you're going to go find other sources. But outside of some really heavy-handed government intervention, importing from China is still the default, not because it's the cheapest, but they know how to manufacture, the supply chains exist, the value chains exist and to break those into pieces is really hard because I'll just give you an example. So we import our 
uh, martial arts uniforms from Pakistan, Pakistan. If you walk around the block where my factory is, right next door to it is another factory that also makes a similar product. And next door to it is another one, next door to another one. The entire row of of uh, that area is all making a similar product. And uh, and right there is there's someone whose full-time job is fixing the equipment, his business is fixing the equipment when it breaks for those factories. So when something breaks, he's there. I have a friend who opened the factory making the same product in Maine. Wonderful business person, really devoted American, and he's doing his thing because it's really important to him. When his piece of equipment breaks, Instead of someone showing up in 20 minutes, he pays someone to fly to Maine. He's down for a day or two, right? And then he's got a huge cost, right? So instead of costing him, you know, 80 bucks to get it fixed, it's costing him several thousand dollars and he's down for a day because there's no infrastructure, there's no, uh, there's no uh, ecosystem there. Same thing for importing the materials. He still has to import the materials from Pakistan. Because that's where the factory that makes the, the materials are, right? Because there's not enough of a supply chain in Maine. So moving these things over uh, just requires an incredible amount of hard work and caring about it. Like uh, I think it's what Rogue Fitness. There's some people that really care about Made in America. And that's like they're devoting their basically their business life to making this business happen. And then you can make it happen. But if your idea is, hey, you know, I'm going to save 20 bucks by moving my product to Mexico or I'll have a little better supply chain or whatever. If you're not willing to be putting in like 80 hours a week and making it happen, it's just never going to happen because it's way too hard a challenge. And for most businesses, it's not worth it. Like just, just source it from China and cost you 5% more and whatever. You move on with your life, get back to sales and marketing, which generates a lot bigger lift than the 5%. Is there any incentive that the that you could see the government offering that would make it to where there is a rush, or is it literally just the time and complexity and labor and decision making that even if the incentive was made, it would still take a decade to actually see a dent in the supply chains? Oh yeah, there's no way to do it in less than a decade, and I'm skeptical it'll even happen over a decade because you it takes a decade of hard work. So. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty optimistic in general, but on this case, like I've just seen so many people try and and we've tried. Like we've tried to move stuff over and people won't pay a dollar more for made in America, no matter what they say, they won't. Um, so you gotta figure out how to do it, compete with your competitors who are not making in America. You have to compete with people that say they're making in American or not. Very, very common uh situation. You see it all the time. People import product and re and rebrand it, and they just say made in America. There was a recent uh, criminal filing or, or lawsuit about it, but ha- I've seen it happen so many times. Um, and those are your competitors, right? So you can't really compete based on made in America. It has to, it, it, you have to be able to win on cost and the pieces are really hard. So I think if the government pushed, they can make it happen over a decade. I don't think they're going to push hard enough. I think we just, it's not the end of the world importing our t-shirts from, yeah, you know, whether it's China or another Southeast Asian country, like does really matter. I know the government cares a lot if it's China or Vietnam. They'd much rather you be importing from Vietnam, but I'm not sure it matters that much. So maybe that asks that leads to my next point. If you were reading headlines, you would say like China is they've peaked and manufacturing's heading outside of China, and you know Apple just announced they're moving to like I think somewhere in Phoenix and Vietnam. Like what is really going on in China from like the pure data, what you're seeing? Is it business as usual over there or is there a meaningful shift, call it globally, to for folks trying to move their businesses out of China? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at like the data from Flexport or Freight Waves, the, um, the share of imports from China continues to stay flat or go up. It's not going down. So we as Americans buy more every year so there's opportunity for a lot of growth outside of China without China going down. We just buy so much stuff. But China is still dominant. And, and it's always been a globalized world. It's never been just China, right? Like we've been importing products from the other Southeast Asian countries for years, right? Like Korea is a, a huge manufacturing company and uh, country. Um, so it's never been just China. And what people don't... And the other thing that I think... The other misconception is people who have this like narrow world of this China based uh, China as the world's manufacturer should just Google how much product the US 
creates and how much we export. We're actually the second largest exporter after China. We export a ton of stuff. We do make a ton of stuff. So it's not, it's not a Chinese-led world, but China's place as the number one exporter in the world is, is not changing this decade. Have the COVID lockdowns had as big of an impact as we think? Or like you just said, imports are still up, so it, it can't be that big of an impact. Yeah, imports are still up. Were there disruptions? Tons. Um, it was super painful and annoying. But the the total export amounts never took that big a hit. The product, you know, ports were closed, created huge backlogs. But you know, we had one point there was like forty five day backlogs, but it still it worked. It all worked its way through, and uh, there's no backlogs anymore. Yeah, that was my next question. Any current inflation cannot now be pointed towards a backlog of over ordered product, or is that still working its way through the system? No, we're we're past that. Um, I mean, I've, I've been yelling that we're going to get deflation for too long. Not deflation, but um, disinflation. I don't know what the term is. Yeah. But <laughs> inflation is going to go back down to normal uh, for too long. I was I was early on that call for sure, so I was wrong. But um, cost of manufactured goods in U.S. dollars has been dropping. Import prices are dropping. Diesel is dropping, and um, regular gasoline has been dropping. It's actually down down a lot. Diesel was the last one that was stubborn, and it's finally been coming down pretty significantly over the last month. So any supply chain fuel-related stuff that I think was the the heat on the fire uh, for inflation is all over. So now I think it's um, it's still working its way through our system, but I think it's mostly just is wages at this point that are driving all of the inflation. And I guess from your point of the world, are there uh, is it only Amazon? that can afford the robots or are robots going to make their way into smaller businesses? Like, is it an affordability thing? How much these machines cost? I have no idea how much these machines cost, or are we going to start seeing more and more of these in the warehouse, no matter what type of business you run? Oh yeah. They're all over the place already. Um, the, the, it's, it's been following a great innovation curve where I mean, we work with a company, uh, in via robotics. So, um, I met their CEO at our facility in Jacksonville, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago at this point. Um, they make the robots for dirt cheap. There's a lot of precision that you no longer need to include in the robots that you had to 10 years ago because they adjust with it with um, you know, AI-based adjustments just like a human. So in the past, where a robot had to be perfect because it was programmed to do exactly something, Nowadays, robots are way more like humans. Humans are super imperfect, right? When you go to grab something, you don't know what you're going to grab exactly, right? I couldn't tell you how to grab something exactly, except as I'm watching it, I adjust, right? So even though I'm very imprecise as a robot, I just constantly keep adjusting. So as the software's gotten better, they now can build robots that are pretty imprecise and still very, very functional because they keep just adjusting just like a person does. So the cost of a warehouse robot in terms of hardware is probably down to the you know sub $25,000 and continuing to drop really rapidly. So costs are coming down. The reason why they're not in more, ro- in more facilities is there's still complexities with rolling them out and integrating with your other systems and all those other bits. Uh, but they're, I mean, it's not that they're going to happen. They're happening today. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, as we kind of wrap up this year, and it's kind of where we started the conversation, but maybe there could be some final thoughts on like leading indicators to where we're going next year. Is there like anything that is kind of top of mind for you in 2023 besides business as usual? Like any interesting data points that you're seeing that kind of have you uh, thinking about where the world is headed? Well, so I mean, think the we I mean, no one knows what the consumer is going to do, but I think it's going to be somewhere, you know, in the middle. Like, it's not going to be a, it's not going to be 2008, and it's it's not going to be you know boom times either, right? We'll we'll muddle along. I think the more interesting question is uh, capital, capital markets, pricing assets. I think, um, you know, no matter what people say publicly, the reality is, if you're trying, if you you know, sort of at our scale, you know, we're we're over a hundred million dollar a year company. You know, we last time, you know, we've raised over fifty million dollars in, in our round. At that scale, 
there's very few investors, new investors that are coming into companies and writing checks. Everyone's afraid to buy at the wrong price, right? Um, so I think people, it's underreported how locked up the late stage growth equity, private equity markets are because everyone's living in fear of, of looking stupid. No one wants to write that big check and find out, man, I, I, I overpaid. So, so that's why we're in this weird world where you're seeing low on, I mean, the unemployment numbers today were great, right? We have low unemployment and tons of layoffs in tech. Like that's never happened before. Usually tech, like engineers are the last people to get fired, right? But that's changing because no one's getting new venture dollars and no one knows what uh, what price stocks will be. No one knows what the correct value is for a tech company these days. Um, so everyone's operating in an environment where you don't know where your next dollar is going to come. And as, as you know, if you can't price assets, it's just nothing moves. Like everything freezes up. You can't sell companies. Uh, no one really wants to do anything. So there's this like a little bit of a gridlock in in um, in tech. Um, and I, I suspect it's also a little bit broader than just tech, like just pricing assets in general. And you, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Or like you seeing people just afraid to commit. Oh, yeah. I mean, the real estate markets have, they're just pretty much shut off. I mean, we have a little bit more of a benefit of being able to have, you know, a lot of, you know, real estate has cash flow. I'm not saying tech businesses don't, but a lot of these businesses aren't profitable yet. I feel like real estate has a little bit more of a easy way to value things. Um, but it's still shut off. I mean, interest rates continue to climb. I think everybody decided, in my opinion, just like talking to people, is kind of like everybody got together in summer and just said, let's take the rest of the year off, like almost collectively. And that's pretty much what you've seen. I think there was a lot of talk that, oh, in Q4, you know, you'll start seeing capital flows come back into the market. That really hasn't happened. I saw Jamie Dimon talk the other day in Dallas and you know, he just, again, he doesn't have a crystal ball, but he thought we'll top out. The Fed funds rates will top out around 5% sometime in Q1. And that'll bring, you know, at least some more um, clarity to the market. He thinks they'll hold steady, if not maybe creep a little bit more throughout the rest of the year. But we're, he, he said, the real estate industry said, I mean, from my view of the world, like Q2 is maybe when you start seeing some activity again, some action, because at least in our industry, but a lot, I'm assuming in your industry with venture, there's apparently $260 billion of committed real estate domestic uh, funds for real estate already raised. They have a three-year clock on most of that to deploy it. I don't know how the VC funds work. I'm assuming it's something similar. Either they're not going to deploy the money or they are, and just knowing human behavior, like they're going to, they'd rather deploy it than not. So We'll see. I mean, leverage in the system tends to be a lot less than it's been, um, at least compared to 08. But kind of what you said, I think the big thing that is interesting to me, and you, you said like um, unemployment remains great, but tech is losing jobs considerably, is like how big of an impact was the tech world having on the entire economy and, you know, if we're going to lose half of our tech workers and it turns out we didn't need them to begin with, like, what is that going to do to, um, you know, the economy in general? Tech is just, it was like, it's led everything for the last 20 years. And now you're kind of having this reckoning moment where it's like, either A, we didn't need all this tech. A lot of stupid stuff got funded that should have never been funded. B, we don't need half the people that we thought we needed to run these companies. I mean, Twitter's maybe a good example of that. I know it's a it's a different type of business, but that's kind of what I think from an industrial standpoint will be really interesting is like, how will the tech companies perform, especially that need warehousing and, um, and everything in 2023? And that's kind of left to be like, we're kind of figuring that out right now. It's the first time in 20 years anybody's doubted tech. So I kind of start rambling at the end there, but as far as price discovery in real estate, it's weird because I think people know what stuff should be priced at. Nobody's willing to pull the trigger yet again because it's, I think, this conscious decision that everybody's taking the year off, especially lenders who had a great first half of the year. Um, anyway, that's a long answer. I don't even know if I answered your question, but it's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. I mean, what you're basically saying is everyone's operating from a 
like just better to better not to swing a miss, right? Better just sit sit here and just you know take a few pitches, right? And just sit on our hands. And I think in real estate, I mean, I guess it depends on if you if you have to refinance or not. But you're not a cash burning business, so you probably have a little bit more flexibility to just sit and wait versus in tech where most of the businesses are cash burning businesses. So if you don't think enough capital is coming in over a given timeline, you have no choice but to cut, right? And if you don't have visibility into when capital is going to come, you don't have a choice but to cut, right? So that's why we've seen all these huge tech companies, um, even ones that are very, very well capitalized, cut because they're like, this might take two years. And like, I, I'm going to run out of money in two years, so I got to cut today. Um, and I think part of them are also saying like, hey, we were willing to spend $10 to get this unit of growth because we were we were multi, our multiple was you know 50x earnings right now it's like well it's actually 5x earnings so i can only spend a dollar instead of $10 right so just some of those marginal ideas of like hey we can grow our company by doing x it's just like well okay that made sense when the market was high right and your stocks down 80% like there's still things to do you might still have a good business but like that that idea that moved the needle a little is just no longer worth funding and just you got to cut back you know, the, the one interesting thing about tech is every once in a while, you have a massive home run. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out in a couple of years as all these... There's finally talent available, right? For years, you just couldn't really hire any good engineers because they were all working at you know Google or, or Facebook or Apple. Now that some are available, it'll be interesting to see if some younger companies get formed and... You know, you can still build a you know a five hundred billion dollar tech company if you're the next Google or the next Apple or the next Amazon. So I suspect there'll be some amazing companies formed out of this. Um, I think that'll be. I think once that happens, tech will come roaring back. But, but yeah, it's a weird time. What do you think happens to uh, like you might be thinking about this with all this talent on the street, but a lot of these people coming out of these companies. You know, we're making these inflated salaries. I mean, you see some of the numbers, these people making six hundred thousand a million dollar a year salary. They weren't, you know, cush everything. They got lift cards and meal cards and like they're coming back out. One, small businesses can't really afford that as like an individual employee. So that obviously they're gonna give stock options to get them if at all. But I sometimes wonder, like, okay, you have a it's not an overwhelming amount of people. It's not like half the country, but you have a lot of people that are used to making 600,000 to a million bucks a year that probably built a lifestyle that supported that. And at least for the next few years, like some of them will get rehired maybe at the same amount, but it seems like there's a lot of people that are going to be like have a day of reckoning that they're just not worth that to the market, to anybody else, but like a Facebook that could, you know, just stomach that it was not even it was a rounding error for them how do you think about that are these what's going to happen to those people yeah i mean some individuals are going to be in a lot of pain like there's and the people that are let go obviously companies try to let go of the the people that they actually couldn't get that value out of them right so those are it's not like the the best people at google will still be able to get a, a job paying a million bucks a year right but a lot of the people that are let go were not the best people and they shouldn't have been getting paid a million dollars a year. And, you know, they just got sort of wrapped up in that's what that level pays and they probably shouldn't have been at that level. So to some degree, A, people are like, I'm going to cry for someone who's got to go back from making, you know, 600000 to two fifty, you know, whatever. But also, hey, man, you know, if you got, you know, you got kids in private school and you've got a house somewhere where, you know, your your property taxes are, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year and, it's, it's, it's painful. So like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm never, never excited for anybody's failure. I think if there's one thing I'm excited about in general, about what this next market brings us is it brings a level of work ethic back into the workforce. You have to really be good at what you're doing to exist. Um, it, you know, it just makes operators the best shine. It, it doesn't allow a ton of incumbents into the market that just can raise money and kind of go around and, you know, create more kind of chaos than is necessary. I think it hopefully makes people maybe more grateful again for, for what they have. I don't know. I just think we're getting, you can kind of feel it. Um, you're, you're seeing it, even the big tech companies, 
I think Salesforce came out the other day, the CEO who was like the first person to say, we're going fully remote work from home. That's the future. And like two years later, he makes this huge announcement that we're not as productive. We're slashing our bottom 10%. And we think that the office culture needs to make a resurgence. I'm not saying the off the office is, uh, you know, could be a hot word, but in general, you've seen that now at Twitter, uh, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook has kind of said, you're just starting to see a new tone in CEOs' voices, which is like, we're going to get back to like working really hard. And if you're not adding value, you're not going to be here. And I think, you know, a 14 year bull run and a lot of cheap money made things pretty lax. Yeah. I mean, my personal experience with it was we, we bootstrapped up to 30 million in, in annual revenue. So we were profitable and we had raised $435,000 to get there. Right. So we did it, by, it. by making profit. And, you know, we had a, we had a really hard conversations internally because, I mean, I owned the company, um, you know, some of our employees have options, but, you know, I, I owned the vast majority of the company. We were profitable. We were big. We're still not growing as fast as we are now, but we were still growing 70% a year. Like it was really solid business. And, you know, we sat down leadership wise and we said, at that point, it's less than now, but like our top three competitors had raised like over a quarter of a million dollars, a uh, quarter of a billion dollars combined in the preceding year. And we looked at each other and we're like, you know, we think we're building a great company that'll go public one day. And we think we could win as an underfunded relative to competition. We think we have the right culture. But can we do that on zero dollars when we're going up against a quarter of a billion dollars? Right. And um and we answered no. We like we honestly don't think we can win um with no money to go up against people with that much more money than us. So we went out and and we got a single investor that that wrote a fifty million dollar check to us, and um, and we jumped on the VC bandwagon uh, or growth equity. I don't know that in a perfect world where money was more expensive, if my competitors had raised, you know, a more reasonable amount of money each, they had reached raised twenty million bucks, and I had raised zero. I think I could I could have fought and and continued to to win in that environment, but I didn't feel like I could do it when they were raising you know hundred million dollar rounds. So. I think there's a lot of companies like that that'll maybe come more to the fore now that the money has stopped. People that had good fundamentals and weren't as hypey. Um, so I think that's the one good thing. The other may be good, may be bad, but certainly painful thing you're going to see is there's more fraud out there. You know, I've spoken to friends about. I'm like, hey, is this company real? And they're like, they even spoke to people that have invested in those companies, and they're like, I don't know, but like. Valuation keeps going up, so whatever. I'm not going to ask any questions, right? Um, we've seen some CEO departures, um, CEOs leaving companies that have raised at a billion dollar plus valuation. Usually, you know, there might be some fraud there, right? Um, something to look at. So, so not just you know the big crypto ones, but some other ones uh, that were just super hypey. So, I think some of that will go. The whole tech industry will be tainted with that for a while, where everyone's going to think all tech is fraud because um, more fraud is going to come to the fore. But it had to happen. It was too frothy. People got away with way too much stuff and uh, it needed to wash out. So, Yeah, hopefully you mentioned going public. Hopefully you see these companies go public a lot earlier. It's just too expensive. Like it's yeah. the, the compliance cost to go public. Like our goal is to go go public the first half of twenty five. Um, so we're working that plan. I think we'll I think we'll get there. Not easy. Um, but you real like the economics of going public these days. Like it's just the overhead, the cost of not just going public, but main, being public. Like we're still going through. We still do like um, you know big four accounting audits and all that, like a public company would. Which is expensive. We still spend a ton of money on compliance, but going public is even more expensive. Uh, so I just, I think that's a regulation regulatory mistake that we just made it too hard, it's just too too expensive to go public. It pays to stay private. Interesting. I didn't realize that that's why a lot of folks were staying private so long, especially in tech. I know it's like a real estate REIT. They usually say, I think it's, I think it's two billion or five billion. I need to freshen up on that is like the minimum amount of AUM. I think at two, you can do it, but it's still pretty tight. Five is where it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So it's just, it's just math. You just look at, well, and you got to be a public company CEO, which like there's days I'm like, I'd rather have a hole in my head than be a public company CEO. But (laughs) 
I, I just wanted to say I was in your neighborhood a lot this month. I was in, we have a warehouse in Fort Worth. So I spent a lot oh, of time you do? in Fort Worth in the last month. Yeah. Uh, Terminal Road down near the airport, that little airport. Yeah. I don't know what it's called. Yeah. But, uh, over, by, over by DFW? No, no, no. Uh, there's a little airport um, in Fort Worth. It's like a little commercial airport. I can't remember what it's called, but it's on Terminal Road in Fort Worth. So we have a warehouse oh, yeah, there. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, Meacham. Yeah, yeah, up yeah. north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you uh, if you are in town anytime, I'd love to host you for lunch or or anything. Um, it'd be fun. Right. Thank you. All right, all really right, man. Well, appreciate the chat. Yeah, I appreciate the chat. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and uh, we'll be in touch. Have a good one. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions.